0: hi welcome back to chris dyer's creative friends the super awesome podcast youtube interview show where me your artist friend chris dyer talks to his super awesome creative friends today i got the special guest uh, mr banjo uh, who's a legendary glass blower some have called him the god of glass (laughs) but pretty much he's a really awesome rad conscious heart-centered person who does beautiful work? is very talented, uh, and uh, we're going to talk about a lot of beautiful and interesting things today. How you doing, banjo? I'm good, brother. Woo! Thanks for coming up. Yes, uh, Hello. Thank you for having me in your beautiful <coughs> home on top <coughs> of a hill. Where are we? We're uh, we're just a few miles southwest of Eugene, Oregon. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You probably don't want to say the name of the town, but it's like just trees. Oh,
1: Eugene. Yeah. It's Eugene. Eugene, Eugene Oregon, and yeah, we're. You know we're 20 minutes outside of eugene up in the hills
0: that's great that's yeah. great that this thing that feels like you know countryside uh cottage country almost it's still the city of eugene it's the best of both worlds yeah. N- nice and you've been here kind of
1: you moved um, out here recently more or less four or five years my wife uh grew up mostly in eugene okay and i i migrated out here from Michigan in 97 and wound up in and around Eugene and Corvallis, the coastal mountains, Willamette Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I began blowing glass was around this area. All right. So this is
0: a, a question I always ask at the beginning of my shows because all the, the people that I interview are, you know, my friends or I know each other a little bit. Um, do you remember how we met?
1: Yeah. Um, gosh. I mean, it was online, of course. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to think, but I believe I reached out to you first to do uh, um, to to have to put art on the walls of a show I was doing at the Escalante Gallery. Yeah. Totally. If, I, if that's the first time I remember you're interacting, I think that's the first time well, I remember I've talking been a to fan, you. You know, for many years. I, I was yeah. stoked that you asked
0: me to be in that big LA gallery. Yeah, that was yeah. That was a special. And with all these Gs, yeah. too, because it was, uh, what was the lineup? Do you remember all the yeah. of the painters on the wall? the
1: painters, it was you, Alex Gray, and Allison, and um, Amanda Sage, and um, Luke, Brown. Luke Brown. Yeah, and Mars One had a piece up. Okay, nice. Um, so it was all these Brian legends. Brought down. Yeah. Yeah, I and was so stoked. We stiff. even had a Rick Griffin piece on the wall oh. that Brian had brought down. Sick. So, yeah, and then I, had, I did a lot of collaborations with friends. For that show too so there was a lot of glass artists mm-hmm. involved in the pieces that were made. i remember this there was is like one of them that was in there this yeah. one here yeah this was the one that was
0: on the juxtapose ad that's advertisement. right
1: yeah that was the one i the, that was actually the one big solo i made for the show
0: mm-hmm. yeah. was that the first time you combined like visual artists with a glass show
1: that was the first time i'd ever done a glass show at all oh wow yeah so how it, did it come about um well i was let's see initially um a friend of mine alex reyna who uh, was our glass photographer and good friend? He was going to these um, these art potlucks presentations at an artist John Swihart's house down in, S- in Southern California, and Greg Escalante was a regular attendee and friend of of uh, John's. And so my friend Alex somehow just got me a gig doing a PowerPoint presentation, a slideshow of my work, at his friend John's artist presentation in the backyard, which is this long-running thing they've been doing for Mm a couple decades. And many very, yeah, just artists that I very much look up to had been on there. And so I I couldn't turn it down. And I had just recently done a show in Florida, in Basel, with a bunch of glass artists that was just sort of like, gave me a glimpse of that aspect of the art world. It was a group show. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we went around at Basel and kind of were feeling out how that whole thing was. And I could tell like, there's nothing, there's no way they're going to, nothing I have right now that's going to fit into that, mm-hmm. you know, paradigm. So I came home kind of just like, oh, well, um, whatever. I'm just going to take whatever comes to me that, based on what I like to make. I'm not going to try and fit into a box. And so around that time, I got this call from Alex to do that thing. And that's why I was like, oh, sure, I have to take this up. But anyway, um, he then cold hit up Greg at one of the gatherings, showed him pieces of my work, and was like, hey, this is my friend. He makes this glass art. And Greg saw the work and was liked it and said, what? I've never seen anything like that. And so Hi. he got me and Greg on the phone. And Greg and I spoke for hours that day and just got along great and he invited me to do a show there and so Greg Escalante sounded like a great he person am- he's amazing and I, he, he died, he like, died yeah. like
0: just like a year after your show maybe two years yeah, huh. yeah. I so wish I could have made it to that I, exhibition. He, it was a special
1: yeah yeah it I was,
0: think I had something else happening that I couldn't say no I remember
1: you had you were you were double booked I, I do remember you had something you had already agreed to do But But it uh, looked really magical. I'm I'm happy I sent my boat, which is one of my best paintings. Yeah, it was amazing. Everybody there, like, to be able to see your work in person, because most of us hadn't seen any of their work in person, but Mm -hmm. you're especially loved among the glass community because glass community is uh, enormously overlaps with the skateboarding community. And so, you know, like, everybody kind of grew up with that kind of art, you know, Mm -hmm. like having a Rod cop board or something in our (laughs) generation yeah yeah very much so in that culture that blend of two different kind of outlier you know street kind of not the not the mainstream rebel culture oh yeah there's huge overlap so Mm -hmm. you're on more glass shot walls probably than any other artist you know I didn't know that, you've but... You've done a few, like, you can, you know.
0: Cool. Well, I'm happy to, to hear that, and uh, then we only really met in person at your birthday a couple months ago when yeah. I was visiting
1: yeah.
0: Eugene, and you had a little gathering with your friends, and you guys were playing, like, all these bluegrass uh, instruments. Yeah. Uh, Sam Griswold was the bass player? Yeah,
1: Sam Griswold, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: Grisman, he was such a nice guy. Uh, you know, when I met him on your birthday, I was like, oh, what a what a cool guy. He was all stoked to meet me
1: too. Oh
0: yeah. And then later on, you, uh, I was told that his dad played with the Grateful Dead. Oh yeah, so.
1: his dad is, is the, the greatest mandolin player like of all time. Like, wow. and he's he's still crushing it now. Oh yeah, he's still alive. But yeah, he he What's did his all name? The, David Grisman. Okay. Yeah, and he was um, he played all the mandolin on. Um, American Beauty, like Ripple, and Friend of the Devil, and all of the little mandolin licks, and Old in the Way, and, you know, That's Shady Grove, all of, the, all of the times you've ever heard Jerry with a mandolin player, it was Sam's dad, yeah. so. Are you a deadhead yourself? I would say I'm a deadhead, yeah. I was even more of a, a Grisman head, it's, which is <laughs> funny. Cause, no but, way. Yeah, because I, you know, Jerry died right around the time I was finding out about that whole world, uh-huh. and so when I dropped out of college in 96 first, but then 97 for good... What was going on? I ch- dropped out and came out west, and what was going on was David Grisman shows. Uh, like he, oh. that was a scene that was kind of a little pocket, and you know, so acoustic music heads were in, who were kind of dead oriented, but weren't going to go to fish or string cheese or any of these younger kind of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, D- David Grisman, Quintet, and that's was, bluegrass. It's well, dog gra- dog music. David Grisman, Sam's dad. They call him David Dog Grisman. Okay, D A W G. And he, he basically made dog music, like in the same way that you would think of like Alex as like a pioneer of visionary art or uh-huh. Venosa, uh-huh. you know, or like... They got
0: a style that's almost like a whole scene in itself. Yeah,
1: he was an island. Mm-hmm. He was an island of, and he still is. And so he blended like everything under the sun, like, uh-huh. you know, gypsy jazz, traditional Jewish, you know... N-
0: i got to find Chris some of his records of bluegrass.
1: now. Bluegrass, oh man, you'd you love it. It's, it's all over the map. It spans from the tightest, highest level bluegrass you've ever heard all the way to like super traditional, you know, songs from Eastern Europe, from, you know, Grandfather's Grandfather's and, um, you know, modern jazz, just like.
0: So if I go to a record store, which section would I find it in if you so Oftentimes all over the place?
1: you'll find it in blue, bluegrass uh-huh. um, because he, he is still considered to be, you know, probably the greatest. Uh-huh. You know, he's in his—he's he's in his early 70s, maybe. But um, uh, yeah, probably bluegrass. Nice. Yeah. And
0: are you a bluegrass gla-
1: player yourself? Yeah, I, I yeah. Your name banjo comes from the fact that you play the banjo it came from making banjos from making yeah yeah because i um in my when i was in college i I was like in sculpture and um i first started making guitars and then i had an instructor who had made banjos and he was i was talking about it he was this burly old um, biker kind of guy he used to make harley davidson's and you know fabricate fenders and restore he was just like the the most capable insanely gifted artist I've ever met. You know, like right up my alley, very tactile and you know, built stuff and forged stuff. But anyway, he was always talking about making banjos. Back when I used to make banjos. Mm -hmm. Um, John Witterstein was his name, rest in peace. But um, so I was like, I'm gonna try making a banjo. So after making a couple guitars, I made a banjo Mm -hmm. and then I just like fell in love with the thing. And right around then I was getting into the dead. You know, this is ninety four, ninety five, and found out Jerry played banjo, and they started listening. You know, he had this old stack of records in the shop. It included a bunch of old bluegrass and dog music, Grisman, all of it. And so all at once, like, I, you know, came into bluegrass, that kind of music, made a banjo in the sculpture shop, then dropped out of college right then with the banjo, and went on the road and basically learned to play it. So, mm-hmm. like, it That's was so that time that, you know banjo became a nickname because I always had a banjo. And so people, you know, how it is on the road, you're traveling, people have their road names and stuff. It was like, hey, banjo, you know, yeah, banjo yeah, guy. Yeah. Hey, right. You, you with the banjo. Right. so eventually I... It's almost like your deadhead name. Yeah, it, very similarly. For me, it was Rainbow Gatherings, but it was okay. very similar, you know. Nice. The so, road name. So
0: um, I want to ask you about your roots. And you're just saying you went to college for sculpting?
1: Yeah, I started... Um, well, I came from... A college-educated house on my mom's side. Um, she taught school and her husband, my stepdad, was a principal and accountant for schools and stuff. So, um, And then on my dad's side, they were total salt-of-the-earth farmers, um, still are, you know, all live in one county, like, you know, dairy farms and just very, very just mellow, good, chill, you know, Michigander people and um, not a lot of college on that side. And so, I kind of just went to college sort of thinking, like, you go to college, you know, because it, it was, like, normalized, and what else do you do? So I wound up there initially trying to do, like, veterinary medicine, thinking I would work with farm animals or something, because I always thought that was cool, you know, the vets doing work and stuff, and I flunked out of that, like, immediately, and then met the art school kids, and my mom's actually an artist as well as a teacher, so I, I always did a lot of art, but met the art school kids and was, started selling them drugs, cuz I kind of came from a little ghetto town, and so, like just seeing how much fun they were having, like, behind the, the dorms, like, just having bonfires and cutting and welding and painting on stuff. And, you know, so after flunking out of, like, you know, the, the just freshman level, whatever the stuff you take to initiate, uh, you know, pre-medical, whatever, veterinary career, you know, by the midway through, I was, like, art major, you know. And so nice. right then I started, you know.
0: But you said you, you quit college?
1: Yeah, the, I, I, went, I went to school in 94. Four, um, cause I graduated in 94 and so I went to college in, in fall 94 and then I dropped out by 97 and I had accumulated almost a whole um, BFA Okay. yeah um, and I would have had a double major in sculpture and photography oh, nice. but I started out after that first semester of flunked pre-veterinary medicine but from there I, I started out with um, art history. So I was an art history major for about two years, art history and sculpture together. And I got all the way up from the, the earliest art, cave paintings and red ochre you know, on the cave wall, mm-hmm. all the way up to around the 1800s. And then I dropped out. So I actually never got schooled at all on any modern art whatsoever. I dropped out of school having known only up to that point and then went traveling and learning. And then psychedelic art and world art were two things that were huge in my life already. So that kind of filled in some blanks. But I didn't really find out about the modern art world until it came knocking at our door as glass you know, community in the last decade or so. Mm-hmm. And so it's been a really funny thing to look back, which like Alex's mission of art, that was pretty much one of the textbooks for just contextualizing art and the role of art and the history of it and what it's become and how it's used in today's culture as you know, a, a way to bond in the same way that Humans have always created art as a way to bond and express, you know, the infinite. Beautiful.
0: So you quit college and you, after almost graduating. Yeah. And you also mentioned that you went to Rainbow Gatherings. Did the Rainbow Gatherings and whatever you learned there get in the way of your oh, formal education?
1: Definitely. Yeah, thankfully. <laughs> yes. Like they, I, in 90, yeah, I think it was 95, I had friends that were going to gatherings. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and that's, so that's where I'd heard about it, was like, what? a bunch of people camping in the woods? Mm-hmm. No that, money. Right. Yeah, yeah. Just and, being free. Yep. So And that was, like I said, you know, that was right around when Jerry died. And where so were
0: these the rainbow gatherings?
1: They were, they're in national forests all around the world. Well, here we call them national forests, but they occur mm-hmm. all over the world, right. these gatherings. But in, in the U.S. they happen in national forests somewhere. Okay. B- basically, word of mouth people show up.
0: You went to a few gather. in different
1: places. Yeah. Oh, all over the country. I went
0: to a few in Quebec.
1: Yeah. There oh, yeah. Was, There
0: was an international one in Quebec yes. at one point.
1: I think I remember hearing about that.
0: That was like 2004.
1: Yeah. 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 It was like, it was basically a, it was like a, they call themselves an, an organization. And it, it came about from Vietnam vets. And just sort of board the centers in the early 70s getting together to pray for peace on the 4th of July. And so mm-hmm. the, the early infrastructure, like rather than celebrating fireworks and stuff, it was a place when all of these kind of early back to the land hippies were coming back all damaged from Nam and stuff. You know, they would have these gatherings and invite everybody, all the different tribes, from, you know, all people from all lands. And they were heavily influenced by like native North American prophecy and cultural traditions and stuff, because most of these people had already eschewed course they're you know white anglo American heritage mm-hmm. you know
0: and what did you learn there
1: um, well they they have a they, they essentially have a, a whole code of conduct which seems pretty much in line with I would say it's a combination of um, of what we would today look at as like religious ide- you know ideological concepts it's like a combination of like religious ideas about you know, God and creation, creator, or whatever, kind of mixed with like the old, you know, the old world, you know, um, indigenous, kind of the earth children, like tribal society, holistic perspective on truth and, and, you know, our place in the world. So Hmm. rainbow gatherings are a a place where, you know, I mean, 99% of us humans are essentially colonists or colonized you know we're both we're all of it like there's no culture left aside from these tiny little dots in the amazon and a little spot over here in africa and you know mm. over here and in, in there's Australia. no original there's a, there's culture left like, almost almost none it's less than one percent mm-hmm. and so you know we are all like the rest of us are one culture the global culture and it's you know it began with the first writing and began with um the first city building and the first, you know, mathematics and all of these different things that, you know, the symbology and the codification of the world and to rational, you know, uh, linear. So it changed constructs. your
0: perspective
1: of yeah, what Yeah, oh, it completely at. changed my perspective because it was like a healing, you know, people were there, they started that, uh, they started that up as a response to really kind of damage, I think that had been occurred you know, on a personal level, for me. Like, I went there just with the usual amount of, you know, trauma and and hits that any normal, you know, Western kid just grows up getting, you know, from culture and all of the messages we hear from school and, you know, pop culture and media and all that. And that made that.
0: you, like, quit college?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was... It, there was nothing... At that point... um You know, like I said, my my dad was a dairy farmer, you know, and his whole entire family were doing that right down the farm. And very just salt of the earth, very Luddite, you know. And then my mom, that side, they were, you know, it was Southern Michigan, very industrialized, very multicultural and really awesome urban, and also very kind of disconnected from the land and from earth. And so there was a sense of disconnection among my conservative, um, you know, side of the family, the dad's side, where I would spend weekends and summers and holidays and stuff, there was a disconnection between them and the rest of the world, the rest of culture, the rest of all the beautiful things that occur everywhere, you know, like they're, you know, they were small, like cultural pocket of, you know, the conservative Americans or whatever. And then my mom's side, where I grew up and was mainly informed by, like grew up break dancing and, you know, skateboarding and, Everything else, like running around, dodging crackheads, you know, just the most, you know, all of the things that city throws at you, you know. And then all the shit in between, too, from just, like, being on the edge of it or having friends that were out, you know, all the levels of Babylon, in a sense. So it's like there was something disconnected there, too. Like it was too disconnected from Earth. And so neither one of those stories could hold me. When I found the gatherings, there was, everybody there was pretty much like, yeah, we don't go for any of that shit. Right. for the most part, I mean, it, mm-hmm. everybody brought with, everybody brings, it's like a lot, it's like any festival or anything, only there wasn't like a band playing, that everybody's like paying money to go see, mm-hmm. you know, it's it like was, a real rootsy Burning Man, uh, yeah, with less hype, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a free Burning Man, mm-hmm. where the, the, the principles of it are no no, I mean, nowadays it's a little different, so I can't, you know, I speak of these halcyon days of rainbows, which It changed throughout the 2000s and the teen years because of visionary culture and because of Burning Man culture and all that. um, That kind of siphoned off all of the good, bushy, bright-eyed, upper-middle-class college kids, you know. They went to the cool
0: one. instead. Yeah, (laughs) they
1: went to the one that was easy and didn't challenge them, you know. You can pay some money and go to the little festival and like Mm -hmm. do a bunch of psychedelics on Friday night and then Saturday night do a bunch of Molly and then... And, you know, Sunday you've blown all your serotonin and Monday you're back at, you know, mm-hmm. Crabby at your job at work. You know, I'm not saying that's everybody's experience, but like when you stand back from festival culture, you know, it, it really is a, a catch for people just looking to, for a good time. For a f- well,
0: a, for a good time or maybe to find and themselves. For connection. And, and also, and-
1: right. But the the construct itself of a festival or a concert, which costs money to be at, versus the 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 construct of, like, the gatherings was, you know, it's huge. The gathering is all-inclusive. Like, everybody can come. If you're poor, if you're a runaway, if you're a criminal, you may be running from the law for who knows what, and you are safe there. Like, mm-hmm. if you, you are were accepted. You're accepted. If, you're, if you me. act in a way that's not in accordance with, you know, truth and the natural law and just do-no-harm mm-hmm. principles of, you know, like, any, that, that every human really knows in their heart... Then you would get squeezed out, or whatever you know. You wouldn't find a you. You'd get formed, you know. I don't know how it. But basically, the rainbow gatherings are like the the other option. Like you can go all the way to the to the left, in a sense. Like I, you know, progressively and, and politically and ideologically, and wind up. You know where that leads in society or you can try and go all the way over the right and completely resist the the left and all the things you think that re- you know this goes for either side it doesn't really matter it's just open for right. finding and, and the yourself. rainbow is like knows that that situation exists and you know the the, the the rainbow family at least at that point or the gathering the people that go there it's in the the tenets like it's in the the understanding of the group already that you know that we're all sovereign beings and that none of those types of ideologies or binary type, you know, descriptions, whatever truly encompass, you know, Mm -hmm. one person.
0: So where did uh, glassblowing come into all this? Quitting college, going to rainbow
1: gatherings, where did glass come in? The first place I saw it was at rainbow gatherings, um, when traveling around. People People,
0: had their torches right there in the woods? They
1: would drag some tanks in, yeah. Oh wow. Right in the, there's like a parking lot type of area there, sort of like a dead lot or any kind of festival lot. (laughs) And, um, <clears throat> yeah, people would drag them out there and just be making little pipes. This is probably 97. Mm-hmm. And then when I w- I wound up settling around Eugene, Corvallis. Um, and there was a lot of glass blowers there. And so as soon as I got there, it was like, everybody's doing it in their garages and stuff. So mm-hmm. and I started being in different friend groups where people were doing it and finding about it. And,
0: and how long did it take you to get like good or, um, you know, like what was that like? What was a pivotal moment point, of, your, well, of your, like, how many, how many years have you been doing this? 22. 22. Yeah. And what was that curve where you're like, okay, now I'm finding my groove both technically, but also I'm finding my audience.
1: Um, oh, man. Well, the audience is always there. Like, for pipe makers, you know, I was, luck- I- I was fortunate because of the-, the pipe makers that were blowing glass at a really high level when I began, were already the best in the game. And so I was lucky enough to just be around the people who were doing the best work. Mm-hmm. And I was influenced by it directly because I got to see the pieces and talk to them and get little tidbits. That of was here
0: in them. Oregon or in yeah. Cali? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, Eugene and Corvallis, Oregon. Was who their, were your uh, mentors? Well, my, my, I learned from a uh, kid, Levi Beard. And he was young, like high school dropout. And it's funny because I was a college dropout and I traveled the country a bit and then landed over you know, up around Corvallis. but So he had been already blowing glass in his parents' garage, and um, there was a little horse stable that he converted to a little glass station, it was like eight feet wide. Mm-hmm. And he was back on his oxygen bill on his dad's, um, on his dad's account. And mm-hmm. so I showed up and I was like swinging beaster weed and just typical little patchwork, you know, dreadlock, you know. Mm-hmm little hippie kid and like I just came and started serving his family weed paid off his oxygen bill and for all of that and kept the oxygen bill paid and for that he allowed me to be in the shop and learn and gave me like everything I needed to know like he showed me all of the basics to make pipes pretty complex ones for the time because he had learned from uh, Jason Lee and Marcel mm-hmm. who um, were at the time they were definitely like z-boys mm-hmm. of the movement Oh wow! that's how you would look at it and so I would say, you know I would say those guys were like, like the guys in Z Boys, and I came around. I was more of like Tony Hawk's generation, right? You know what I mean? Bones Brigade. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, or Hocus Pocus stuff. You know, like (laughs) where like Marcel, Jason Lee, Clinton, Pedro, um, Ezra. Marcel
0: would be Jason Lee. What's that? (laughs) Marcel would be Jason Lee. Oh,
1: there is a Jason Lee glassblower. Okay. Yeah, that's a funny thing. I thought you
0: brought it back to skateboarding analogies. That's what's
1: funny, too, because Jason Lee, he was one of the dudes that had, like, he was the only one. Like, the rest of them all had names like Marcel, Clinton, Mm -hmm. you know, Ezra, Pedro, you know. Chris Dawson, and then Jason Lee. And so mm-hmm. we're like, Jason Lee's already got like a cool name. So yeah, yeah, yeah. they all had star status. But they were like that group of, you know, early Z-Boys. And then mm-hmm. by the 2000-ish, because I began in 99, but 2009, 2001, it was quite a wave. Like, we jumped on a wave they created uh-huh. just as the, before the inter- internet was taken off. And so...
0: So you were making pipes and bongs, and yeah. when
1: was the dab rig invented? The dab rig thing <laughs> is, is about 10... 10 15 years now, I guess. Uh huh. Because
0: um, it's a new kind of smoking weed.
1: Yeah, it's a revisit. Yeah, the, the, definitely smoking, taking dabs and, and, and heating them up a quartz banger, you know, and um, with a torch and bubbling it. That's like, I think that is about eight, 10 years old now, you know. Mm. But that's pretty But that opened new. up a
0: whole new market for glass blowers. Yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, a huge With league. a different uh,
0: price tag on it, too. Well,
1: yeah, it, it it went up in kind of in tandem, you know, with legalization.
0: Are are bongs as expensive as dab rigs? Or dab rigs is a whole different universe. It's pretty of... much
1: the: It's the same on a lot of levels, but like, uh, like up into a certain price point. But then there's a certain price point where there's very few bongs. There's very few marijuana or flower pipes. Above a certain point, you know, so all of the what, most. What's the the
0: the roof for a price for a bong per se?
1: Well, f- for like a like a flower pipe.
0: What's yeah for a, yeah for
1: for just flower? For yeah, you know, right now commonly you won't see a flower pipe much more than five grand, mm-hmm. ten grand, you know, and that would that's pretty. It's not like every day even. That's if someone who it's like the w- well, bongest no, of the bongest. Yeah, well, there's a lot of sweet work, but like. Yeah. There, there's 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 hash pipes. There's dab rigs going for five or ten grand, like every day, all day. Right. That's so the, like the, a, the like amount of right bottom. yeah yeah. It's I wouldn't say bottom, but it's it's the mid for sure. You know, four figures is a solid middle. And what's the what's the roof for a dab rig? Um, I guess I you know a couple have sold for over a hundred. Yeah. That's a couple of sold for over 100 and two made a hundred and too many to count probably. A hundred thousand dollars for a
0: tab a dab rig. That's pretty. I will not call it crazy because it sounds like it crazy is it's crazy. a bad thing, but it's like it's wow. Who? How we would have thought of
1: like a pipe? It, it worked its way up. I mean, over twenty five years, you know, or so. Like the the move. You know, this this glass pipe art movement is um. Yeah, it began really in the early nineties. 80s and early 90s on deadlots with Bob Snodgrass. And so by the mid 90s, um, and Bob had a few apprentices. He had Hugh and um, he was his first one I think. Uh, But like just lots of different Bob had lots of different apprentices but like by the mid 90s, late 90s, Marcel, Clinton, Jason, Pedro, Ezra. So Bob was almost like the, uh, you know, he was like the banana board era. But mm-hmm. it was skateboarding for sure. They were doing handstands on skateboards. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? <laughs> for sure. I like and the skate analogy. Definitely doing it barefoot. <laughs> like they were skateboarding around barefoot. You know, and so when Marcel and Clinton and Jason and Pedro and Ezra Chris Dawson came around, you know, they're like a Fab Five. Like, and Marcel
0: is the Marcel from that's the statue Elect- yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: He was one of the original like. Nice. Z-Boys, cool. and they went, they our were like...
0: former uh, guest from the last episode, check him out. <laughs>
1: yeah, Marcel's great. He's one of my early heroes, and he's a granddaddy, in a sense, to, to my craft, because he taught the dude that taught me, you know? Nice. Yeah. Wow. But, yeah, so those guys, that was like the late 90s, you know? And then, like I said, by the time my generation came in in the, mm. in the 2000s, early 2000s, I started in 99, but we were getting going and getting our legs in the early 2000s. We were like that Bones Brigade, you know, Hocus Pocus era, 80s into the 90s. Right. And then now, I'm 22 years in, and so we watched it go. Like, when I got in, Clinton was making, you know, let me think. His his bubblers were probably $250, $300 wholesale mm-hmm. for a really sweet bubbler. Mm-hmm. And it would sell for, you could probably sell it for $500 at a store or to, like, the headiest dude on, on the string cheese lot or the fish lot or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> you know, when we began, we, you know, at that time, like we we're making five and 10 and $50 pipes and to aspire to be, to be able to make a 250 like Clinton or Marcel. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And then right, right, not long after I started, it, they push it up, you know, to where the, Marcel was making like a thousand that we heard a rumor. I had a I had uh, a friend that was uh, one, one of Marcel's ex-girlfriends and she came and was like, Marcel makes like a $1,000 piece a week now. He doesn't even mess with any little things like this, you know, because we're in there making our spoons and stuff. So then we're just like, what? So that became the new goal, you know? Not that it was immediately- It was a step in the lather. Every step of the way. This Mm -hmm. is back in 2000. So in 2000, Marcel and Clinton and those guys, 2001, by then they were probably getting, they were the the high level and they were probably getting four, five, six grand out of like a really sweet big flower pipe, you Mm -hmm. know? thank you
0: yeah thank you um wow so, so it crept up
1: slowly there were never any really big jumps where dad rigs came mm-hmm. it, it, it it built strength and kept growing faster but it never went from like five to 20. it just it
0: was a step yeah, at a, one step at a time in 20 time. years uh what
1: yeah. do you think is that
0: brought it up to those prices just the quality of artistry you're smoking out at a beautiful art sculpture pretty much that's functional
1: um, it's a combination it's a combination of a lot of factors the legalization of marijuana going across the country dabs hash like people making slabs all of a sudden you know you had dispensaries everywhere popped up that could legally legally bring in herb money so they you know all the money that started generating around there would get spent on glass lots of it you know for luxuries like cars Trips, glass, of course, so, you know, that jacked the price up. And um, and then the, also the, 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 the smuggle ability of slabs. You all of a sudden could just smuggle like tens of thousands of dollars worth of hash mm-hmm. flying around and stink like stack it up, you know. A lot different than big old bulky pounds from, you know, my day. So like mm-hmm. or the early days. That also affected it, you know. So that just brought more money to the growers. More money, more attention, all of it. Yeah, the hash is like... So the the
0: people who buy these pipes are like the actually owners of farms or weed brands who just want to smoke in the most elegant way. So it, It's almost like having the nicest ro- Rolex or the chain, you know, but they're like smoking out of the the most flowery crazy banjo pipe. Whenever I see somebody smoking out of a banjo pipe, I'm like, "Damn, you're a baller."
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, cha- it it's funny how diverse the how diverse the the, 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 the base is, you know. It it does go all the way from the farmer, to the processor, to the person that uh, merchandises it. You know, I mean, there's people taking chances, who are totally in the black market area, that are you know doing stuff, and they're they're part of the market. And there's people who are going entirely through the you know the legitimate legal routes, mm-hmm. and all kinds of legal money's coming in. You know, it's, it's fueled by people who are just passionate. You know. Whatever it is, like th- this is like better than a car, you know. Mm-hmm. You can use it. It's it's fairly interesting. It's resellable. Yeah, yeah it's, it's resellable. Like it won't almost add. anything will retain its value, you know. Right if, if, beyond a certain point. Like there's probably there's at least two two hundred people in the scene I'd say whose work will just never decrease in value. Mm-hmm. As long as, but it, can, it can gain financial. with the years oh, the as time. they gain in status, like a painting could. All the, yeah, as the, opposed the same to a car way. that loses it with mileage. Yeah, same way. It's just you know what's interesting. You you know you know a similar kind of thing to the, to what we know with there being a young group of people that you know like gobble up the art that speaks to them, like you know mm-hmm. even like skateboards, even like broken skateboards. Mm-hmm. That's a very tactile thing, and if someone's into skating, you know, mm-hmm. to grab onto that, it's like, it puts them in the place right. where, they, where skating takes them, 12. and so, like, to, it's the same way, it's a spiritual thing, it's a spiritual art, it's a spiritual exchange, mm-hmm. because when you share the pipe and share that experience, you know.
0: Yeah, it's a usable thing, but what, what, what I think, I'm, what's cool about these uh, fancy dab rigs is say as compared to a painting that you put in your living room and when your guests come over and they see it as like, oh, wow, you got an original Chris Dyer. That's so cool. But you can't take it to the streets and be like, hey, look at my painting. While the dab you go around your little case. That's a major sh- part of it. You show up yeah. to, the, to the show. Like, I had a show in LA last month with Pinky Bruce. Oh, I love and Pinky. And all, yeah. all, all, all the guests came with the little cases. They sat on a the table. They all brought their, like, prime yeah. collection you just piece. Saw it.
1: What you saw, that is like the heartbeat right there. Mm-hmm. Like, those very events, interesting. you know, th- I, this is speaking from Papa status, you know, looking down at it now, because that's, that has been the last five, six, eight years, you know, like those events are the heartbeat, they're just like, that's ground central, that's like, that's the center that holds much of the scene together, is those experiences of people bringing their art, putting it on the table, loving each other's art, sharing Mm -hmm. each other's art, passing it, you know, just the effect of passing it, and Mm. being of one breath, you know, like, I mean, it's... It's beautiful. Yeah, it it brings you to a place that...
0: Do you think, um, you know, I'm going to make a difficult question here. Do you think it's, as you said, a beautiful thing of exchanging art and expression and stoke for each other's pieces? Or is there also like a little bit of a superficial show-offy like, ooh, look at what I got. And you as a rootsy person who's like this humble, you know, son of a farmer that built his way up, you know... uh, how do you feel about your art being used as a status for somebody to show off their wealth, or is that not the way you see it? Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. It's, let me think about that. How to respond to that? I know it's a, a little bit of a judgmental kind of question. No, 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 but no, I'm no sure, it's not at all. I'm sure. I don't know. There's a <laughs> little bit of everything.
1: Yeah, yeah, not at all. Um, the first thing that I thought of um, was it's definitely both. Um, and that is, that's a beautiful thing. Um, and, you know, I, as a, you know, as, as a grown man and a father, you, you know, living on the land. I mean, I live in a nice house that someone built, but like, I live in the forest and see the sun come up, you know, and go down. Um, you know, I identify with that kind of simple fa- father side, you know, dad's people all down on the farm. I've been drawn back to the earth, and that's my my model for my lineage and ancestry of how you do it. You know, you just you start by getting closer to the earth. But on the mom side, you know, that was very much like my grandpa went to Yale, and my mom was you know uh, taught special education, special education for years. You know, emotional impaired. She's a world traveler. She's um, she's a, a she practices the Baha'i faith. Mm. So I, which grew is up. a which is a. Religion of all religions. Almost yeah, so. they they recognize the the divinity of all of the the different prophets. Mm. And so it's a religion that emerged out of Shi'i Islam in the 1800s, in the early 1800s, and they Baha'u'llah um, was the prophet, and he basically taught that um, that all of the manifestations of God all Speak of and honor the same one truth the same one God so your mom
0: influenced you in my mom way
1: huge So I was I grew up in that environment More but it was still you know, it was still very City oriented, you know, like it was very uh, Civilizationally oriented still a monotheistic religion, you know, it didn't it didn't really have a lot to offer about connecting with the the body and the earth and reality because it was a very emancipatory, you know, up into the, the spiritual realms is where they focus like most, you know, really most Abrahamic religions, you know, do focus on the the, the upper end of it, the the father stuff, the logical stuff, the so, male stuff.
0: Let me rephrase this question. You become so popular, Banja. You. You're like, you know, probably the best-known glassblower these days. I know it's discussed, but you're huge these days. But you're really just a simple man. You know, you're an artist. How does it feel? Are you stoked that you blew up and that you got all this popularity and, and, and fame and recognition? Or is it kind of like annoying at the same time or a lot of pressure? There's, you know, you got to... Be careful what you say and what you do sometimes. I'm asking you as somebody who's also gone through the same, you know? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: And it's both a blessing and a, a curse sometimes.
1: <laughs> yeah, you know, I'll tell you what. Um, well, it, it, there's a statement um, that to an ordinary man, everything is seems a blessing or a curse. But a warrior sees everything as a challenge. And so I have to say that it's been a challenge, and it's included many blessings you know and it's It's very difficult for me to it's it's difficult for me to really describe or refer to any of the experiences that have come about for, through my being this popular in my field and it's reaching out into some other fields obviously but um i can't describe any of it as a curse because of my world view you know mm-hmm. i see it I see those things as challenges. You know, I, I believe that everything that happens to us happens for our enlightenment mm. or for our enjoyment Beautiful. or both. Mm-hmm. And so even the things that um, present as challenges or curses or and it's been a fucking curse at times. So, you know, don't get me wrong, but I, I, you know, I can't rest with that being the description, you know, so it's, it's yes, it's yes in both, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's like, I, the 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 further I go with it, the and the, um, the more I realize it's like, it's a platform, um, it, it's a plate that that I can serve a ministry on, mm-hmm. and the the more the plate gets developed, it's like the more I'm my I'm I, I feel called to develop, you know, myself and what it is that I'm here on earth to share, so that I can serve that on on that plate.
0: Mm-hmm. Beautiful man, woo. Thanks for doing the work. So, as, as we were talking, glass has been growing both in technicality, in beauty, in price range. How much bigger do you see both yourself as an individual artist and the whole scene growing? Like, uh, how much more is it going to flower?
1: I think that it will continue to flower and, um, and, and rise in tandem with... Um, I think it will continue on, like, really strongly. I think regardless of what happens with the rest of the world, like, this is something that that people want, you know? Like, handmade, beautiful objects that put you in connection to the natural world via the herb that you smoke it with, Mm -hmm. through it. And we just just keep on getting legalized
0: more and more. Yeah,
1: and the the connection between people Mm
0: -hmm.
1: that happens when they share art And share herb and you know like those things will outlast government's financial systems name it as long as there is you know there's a cost to everything as long as there's propane and oxygen and glass like you know we'll be making this stuff like this might be money at some point you know it's money now for me I don't even you know this is just it's currency you know Mm-hmm. And I put all of my love into it, so it's infused with the the quality of of uh, of love that I that I have for myself, and mm-hmm. that can pl- that can flow into it, and you know can be a gift to. Is it, people is it who your enjoy in, it?
0: Is it your intention that people? Well, I think it's almost inevitable that people would have a more enjoyable experience of smoking their herb and their medicine out of something that's beautiful. But because you put that magician's spiritual intention into the uh, spiritual piece you're making. This is a meditating lady. Do you think that would uh, interfere in a positive way with the medicine being burnt and going through it and then reaching the person? Do you think some you code know, is injected into the herd people be smoking through going through your pipe?
1: I, would, I wouldn't have a problem with that, Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that, that description. Um, you know, and for a lot, I, I was initiated into Reiki maybe 20 uh-huh. years ago, okay, nice. a little longer even, right before I started blowing glass. And so with that, um, with that line of uh, practice, the idea that everything's in motion and everything you touch is informed by your vibration. Mm-hmm. Like I got it in my mind, I was just like, whoa. So when you're holding two rods of glass in front of a flame... And their heart is rock, you know mm-hmm. they're crystalline, and then the heat causes those electrons and molecules to, to move around so fast they become slippery mm-hmm. and completely lose their, their, their connection to each other and their rigidity. I can't help but wonder and I've been thinking about this for over 20 years. I, I, I do remember having this when I began, because I can remember the shop I was in when it first occurred to me, and it was a shop I was, it was like three months in to glass. Mm-hmm. So I can remember this thought that far back.. Um, but like, what kind of energy? Like, what happens to this molten glass? What happens to those molecules that are all in flux? It's I'm part of this circuit. I'm grounded to the earth. My hands are holding it. Now the glass itself is an insulator, but when the glass starts to heat up, it it's conductive in this different way.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: it's like, long story short, yeah. I don't know. It's 20 years in the making, and it's only you know it's only been more recently that I've started to. You know, maybe five or six or eight years that I've started to really practice certain internal things rather than just sort of think about them and learn about them. Mm-hmm. And the more I practice, the more I'd, I'm like, whoa, you know, even before I knew what the hell was going on, I think I was putting my love in these things. And it was, right. and it was like something that people would feel and tell me they felt, mm-hmm. even at a time when I wasn't in touch with that level of love for myself yet. Right. So it's just really interesting the way that that reflection can happen.
0: Right. Well, this is a very. I, I love glass blowing, not that I can do it at all, but I, I love you seeing. <laughs> oh, I don't want to burn my fingers. Oh, yeah.
1: That's real. That's like me with skateboarding. Okay. Right.
0: Um, but you're working with this heat and this fire, which is pure energy that you can see and feel, and you're melting matter and curving <laughs> it and making all this crazy thing. It's really like. I don't know. I think it's, it's a very special way of making art. So I really appreciate uh, what you're doing. Now, other than uh, doing this art, you're also like a charity, man, right? Yeah. Like, I, I
1: mean, yeah. What,
0: I, what's some movements that you've been uh, contributing uh,
1: Well, there's two that we've been really involved with for a lot of years. One was um, the Michigan Glass Project, okay. which uh, that's in Detroit, um, Art Road, Detroit. And our friend... Allison Key and uh, Drew Cups. They um, <clears> that I didn't have one last year because of the situation, mm-hmm. um, but they've been going quite a few years where they bring in a lot of glass artists. Um, everybody co- collaborates and makes all kinds of art and auctions it off, and then all of the proceeds go to putting art back in um, these really ravished inner city schools that have lost art as from the curriculum as part of budget cuts. It's just typical flight out of the you know, the urban areas. So um, that's one that like that's very awesome. Like we would go in and collaborate with several artists and make, you know, a really sweet piece with like five or six or seven or eight artists in it. And, um, you know, I mean, by the time it's done, you know, we're out getting done in the middle of the night and everybody's there watching it get done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's exciting.
0: Super special for the kids. Yeah,
1: that's sweet. So these are kids that wouldn't have art. So it's like it buys, it puts art, you know, art in a school for a whole year. Mm-hmm. That's one, and then another one uh, we do work with um, uh, this group uh, Imado, which is a group in Kenya that is fighting to or working to end uh, female uh, female genital mutilation, mm-hmm. FGM, um, and help them basically uh, not have to succumb to the early marriage and be kind of bartered as you know it's 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 rough over there. The Maasai people are par- are pastoral pastoral, you know, herders and the lands keeping encroached on. So it's like, you know, the cattle and it's the customs of young, young marriage and, you know, clitorectomies and cutting the, Whoa. it's, dude, it's so, it's so fucking brutal. But like my, my aunt um, is an awesome lady, my aunt Beth, and she's gone around the world helping different groups, you know, from the ground up, real grassroots. And this is a group that she became aligned with a few years ago. So we've been doing lots of auctions and stuff for them the last few years. You know, Anne has like 100 girls. When I started with them, they had 12. Mm. And so when we were bringing a few hundred bucks, it was like pretty big, you know. And so now they have like 100 girls. They're building a rescue center, you know. Uh, wow. And, she, you know, she's housing them. Like Anne is a woman that, who's a Maasai woman that had been cut. And then when she grew up um, and had daughters, she was like, Nuhuh. And so then she you know, fought and had to go through all the cultural stuff. This is, you know, she's not much older than us. Mm. Which had to go through the cultural stuff of breaking with the family traditions and, you know, it's crazy stuff. And it's nuts because the Maasai can't remember, like there's no c- cultural heritage. that They can't remember a time when they didn't do this. And so for them, it's become involved as what they think of as like a traditional part of their culture. But if you go back, like those, of you know, from, from the outside world, you, studying history. They're like, those, Why are
0: you guys cutting those women's those, du- parts?
1: Dude, those practices were brought to them by Arab slave traders. Like an Egyptian, you know, those times they would come go out and capture slaves from the out, from the, you know, outlying lands. And those are ways of marking slaves. Mm. All circumcision.
0: But like what? So they don't have any pleasure doing that's,
1: sex? That's part of it. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the stated pleasure. That's they, they, like it's a, it's so abso- mean. It's, the, it's absolute misogyny. It's like the, the earliest form of misogyny. And it's male and female. I mean, it's tough to talk about male circumcision because that's so interwoven with our culture still. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But female circumcision, there's really not many people that would disagree that it's a, a barbaric, you know, horrifying Practice, mm. um, you know, but it, it, it's not even the Masai's tradition. You know, those people, the cultural, the ancestral, you know, line of those people would have gone back to times before that was even happening. But since yeah. this was like many hundreds of years ago when that practice got woven in, it, it's you know, it's just thought of as being what we always do. And mm-hmm. so, Anne is somebody that had to break with that part of her tradition, but still is Masai. Mm. Like, still identifies, you know, full on. And so they have a community of, like, moms and aunts. It's like a total underground kind of thing. Like, she goes and fucking rescues these, these girls on, on a motorcycle. Wow. Like, and just, like, crashed a motorcycle last year, like, going and rescuing, like, 11-year-old girl who's about to get cut and married off. So that's, that's, the, that's the group that I'm most passionate with right now because it's still going on. Like, Michigan is on a hiatus, but as soon as that jumps up, we'd love to help with that, too.
0: Nice. Well, good job yeah. on, you know, helping those two issues and yeah. uh, thank you for informing us. Um, it seems like the world has an infinity of problems. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, like, how do you see the world these days? And this is a very general question you can go off on. Uh, you know, what does it take to make the world a better place? You know, we're artists. We're just making beautiful things for people who appreciate it. But we're also uh, men with power and maybe some influence, or you know, at least ideas. Or we can talk about I don't know. Like, uh, how can we help the world get out of the madness we currently are in, especially in these last couple of years?
1: Well, the one-word answer I think we both know. You know, the one-word answer. Love. That's it. Yeah. You know. And, and so from there, you look at it like this, there's like four, there's four different ways of approaching the problems of the world. One of them, the first one would be with, uh, with cynicism. Oh, whatever, you know, no big deal, they'll take care of it, you know, I'm not going to look at that. They'll take care of it, it's fine. And the second way is um, really uh, nihilistic. Okay, we're all fucked. It's fucked. There's no point in doing anything. We're fucked. It's done. It's shot. Look at them. The elite or whatever. They're doing it, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And the third way would be the angel alien kind of thing. Outside savior, you know, political leader, telegram, Instagram influencer, conspiracy theorist, truther the right, you know, the right social justice message, whatever it is, like it's an outside thing that hopefully will just figure itself out, right? Mm -hmm. Aliens. Somebody will come to rescue Yeah, something. And then the fourth way, obviously, is the self. The self has to wake up, you know? When enough selves wake up, maybe, you know, we're mainly awake instead of kind of mainly asleep. And so, you know, we, back to how do we help the world? We acknowledge what pain it is that we hold that we bring to it, firstly. Mm -hmm. And if that's pain that we feel because we're ashamed of things that we've done, um, then we need to face that. And if it's pain that we feel when we see injustices happening to other people, we need to face the pain here. Because we're adding more pain to the world when we commiserate and, and get on that vibration of, of pain and misery with, with the people who are being hurt. And the people who are hurting them have a level of pain that goes even beyond that of those who are getting hurt. Now that's not an easy, you know, that's not an easy view to hold. And it's, e- it's easy to say being in such a abundantly safe like fortunate you know reality and world that we live in you know but i I know i mean i've been you know when i was um i think i was maybe five years old and uh, i was watching like on the tv i saw like chains and black bodies and just wailing and moaning Uh, and i was i asked my mom what it was and um And she broke down the slave trade.
0: Mm -hmm. What was it, like Roots?
1: Yeah, I think it was Roots. Yeah, it had to have been. It was like this mini-series was out. And so I was five. Mm. And she told me about the ships. I mean, you know, the the mentality. Mm. And so, like, you know, when you have that realization of what humans are capable of, at that early of an age, you know, thankfully... I had a container to hold it because she was a, and she is a very spiritual, you know, loving woman. So. Yeah.
0: Well, it made your heart, seeing the suffering and the pain in the world and and making you a little bit sad is an emotion that's necessary sometimes Mm. to trigger us into like, okay, what do I do to change it? Mm -hmm. What can be my contribution? Uh, You know, what, how can we, how can we solve It's absolutely
1: necessary. To, to, to first, you know, what can we do to help the world? The first thing we can do is notice our own trauma. Notice what lenses it is that we're seeing the world through. Because if we're seeing the world through lenses that have been clouded by trauma from any place, from, that we've brought onto ourselves consciously with our choices, or trauma that's been brought to us by our experience, not by choices that we're aware of. Whatever it is, trauma clouds the lens. And so we have to face trauma first of all. And clean it, and clean it up, and heal it, you know, before we can even see clearly. So what can each person do? They can, this is a real world stuff. You know, This is, this is pith instruction on in what anyone can do right now if they really think they want to help the world. They can look and see how much trauma they're bringing to the world. Mm-hmm. How much pain are they bringing to the world? Right. When, when they get offended, do they realize that they're, br- they're giving as much offense to the world as the person who supposedly offended them? you know because it, it you give as much offense to the world when you take offense as when you give offense right and, and that's something that's within your control mm. you know you can't control whether someone gets offended by what you've said or not you can say nothing that's a safe way right. but you can't control whether someone gets offended or not but you can absolutely control whether you get offended or you not could, by what they say
0: you could end the the chain of pain that's it. in yourself it's like okay this is something that triggered me but i'm just gonna be like sit with it see Why it triggers me, and see how I can resolve that and be okay with it, and allow that person to be whoever they want, take it it wherever they they believe, and do my thing and go on with peace and keep on shining love.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: As opposed to attacking back because they just fucked with my own perspective of reality. This is how it is. I'm going to tell you what. (laughs) Not that I know the truth anyway. It's
1: more potent. It's more potent because as you stand in your power and in your love and in your authentic, infinite intelligence that you know really is at the root of who you are and who we all are but your personal little you know anchor point in the universe of that consciousness when you stand in that power and emanate the love which you do it's what attracted me to your work and it's why i asked you to be in that show i was attracted to the way you spoke about yourself like fearlessly all these things you know like those were certain things in my story that i was trying to put together you know, just because I had been just sort of hiding this little glass pipe maker in the background, and then all of a sudden I'm getting asked to come to Alex Gray's and do the the Greg show. So I immediately went around the visionary community, which was the closest I could figure out to folks that were artists that were trying to do something for, a, you know, a spiritually motivated purpose and try and have a positive effect on kind of the masses and the groups that they had, you know, I noticed that group started, you know, cohering around glass. And so when I was, my situation came to, kind of put on the table what it is I'm here to offer for myself, because I was asked to go to real art shit, you know, I couldn't just hide behind the pipe thing. When mm-hmm. that time came for me, I've, I was looking to you and Luke and Alex and, you know, Amanda. I chose you guys to, to reach out to you guys because of the way that each of you were just so fearless and honest in what you were here to share. You know, mm-hmm. this is my art, here's what I believe, it's about love, like unapologetically. And I'm in a spiritual closet, I still am. I'll throw some stuff up on my stuff, but... I'm in a, I, I'm in so many spiritual closets because of the different spiritual realms and stuff that I've explored. Like just from my mom's side, I already accept. I mean, the the prayer I said growing up was finished with Allah, pa, Allah, You know, like God, Allah is glorious. Like I straight up grew up worshiping Allah, mm-hmm. and then I go over, but not knowing it. We call it called God, God. You know, my mom's mm. Western world. But like and then going over to my dad's. We are all hiding out at Sunday school and like, just like, don't say a word of what we know. <laughs> what we know over when, when we're those gods miles. don't get together. <laughs> yeah, no, no, dude. And so like, you know, and, and, and finding the hippies, finding the rainbow, finding the, 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 the you know, I caught on to the wake of the dead. That ship was over, already sailed when I showed up, but the wake was there and somehow I was lucky enough to get caught in it. And the, the mentors and elders that I ran into were those early Back to the lander, drop out of society type, you know, mm-hmm. outlaw, hippie, wooks, you know, lot, just total lot lords, you know. Mm-hmm. But at a time when I probably, most of my contemporaries my age were kind of went off and ran into fish and Burning Man, and, and so, and I started having all these kids and stuff, so I kind of grounded me, and then glass, and it was just like, you know. So you've just all, you're bringing it back to the beginning where,
0: you know, you have faith in the future because you've seen yourself change throughout the years Absolutely. and grow. Oh, Absolutely. Um, that's a really good way to put it. You know, see that uh, both ourselves as imperfect human beings... Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, we're perfect and our yeah, imperfection, I I'm just of giving course. You <laughs> 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 But that's uh, uh, still developing. But we are still got Constantly room, room for growth. For me yeah. to think that yeah. I'm, I'm done, it would be very foolish. That's the number one trap. Um, and the yeah. same for humanity. We still got lots of room for growth, but uh, it's going to happen. We've got to have patience, as you said, and just have faith that uh, it's inevitable that we'll go back to source at some point mm-hmm. and that things will get better, even if we got to go through some rough bumps.
1: That's it. And, and you know, it is, it is a planetary, you know, it is a planetary dark night of the soul. And people who have... Um, been led to have to do healing work and have to face shadow already in their life, you know, might have some tools that are useful for those people who are just seeing all of this craziness happening and feeling this pressure being confined and locked down. Like, you know, that kind of pressure, um, could be the source of endless fear or it, it, it can actually catalyze, you know, the kind of growth that everyone on earth essentially, I think is capable. I think we're all gonna do this, you know, I really do. Like, um, I, don't have any, I don't have any fears about any of this. I'm not afraid of them coming and trying to vax my family. I mean, this is fucking ridiculous. They don't have, <laughs> they don't have any, you know, they don't have the, the manpower. They don't, they don't have the, I don't even think they have the intention, you know? The whole game for them is to fool you into wanting it. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be real. It's been a year and a half since all this shit's been going on. And it's been just a few months since the Vax rolled out. I should say Wax or something so we don't get, I don't know. It's been just, it's been (laughs) just the thing. It's been just a few months since the thing rolled out. It's been a year and a half that, you know, everybody's, we've been on this whole page of, you know, global situation, whatever you want to call it. But it's been just, it's been a few months since the thing was released. I've seen, like, and you and me, we both, I know we both, you know, look down all the same crazy rabbit holes, you know, and we just see what people are putting out there. I like to look and see and look for overlap. I, I, you know, I come from the left. I come from a progressive leftist background. I've read, like, you know, dozens of Noam Chomsky books and, you know, Howard Zinn multiple times, like all of that, like that, Malcolm X, more times than I can remember, you know, like all of these James Baldwin, I mean, all these fundamental, like, people, Alex Haley, Alex Haley's other writings besides Roots are just, like, mind-blowing, you know, like, mm-hmm. I mean, I grew up in a really diverse place, and the books that were put in front of us were all over the place, Luis May Alcott and Maya Angelou, like, the, all of that stuff, like, informed, you know, I come from a, you know, then going into the hippie stuff with the Earth First and the Save the Forest and the people chaining the trees and the tree sitting and... That you know, I didn't go to that level quite, but Rainbow, that was that, it was all outlaw, and that was one of the factions, there was overlap there. Mm-hmm. So when I come into this sort of situation now, and, and notice how things have flipped in 10, 20 years, where the conspiracy theorists are 10, the right. 10, 20 years,
0: or two years even. What, what were you calling it, Op, uh, Order 55 or something? Oh, like the Jedi thing, like in Star Wars, where the Jedi's, you know, they were like, from the from the prequels. At the end of the three first movies, you know, the Republic soldiers who had been fighting in the Clone Wars, they were all the good guys fighting aside the Jedi's, and all of a sudden the Republic turns into the Empire, you know? And the the leader of the good guys turns out to be the biggest bad guy and turns the flip, the switch, and now every, every good soldier is a stormtrooper yeah. working for evil, and they kill all the Jedi. Yeah, they hunt them down. That was like, what, Operative 55? Order
1: 66. Order 66. Yeah, funny with the numerology, with Hollywood always dropping the uh, reveals, too. Ooh, but think about this, the Jedis were like revered. They were like the peacekeepers of the galaxy, and they directed the clones around. Mm-hmm. And then after clone, the Order 66, the clones just do-do-do, turned on all the Jedis and chased them off into the different parts of the galaxy. But Mm -hmm. you know, you got to keep moving along, because we see what happened, you know, like eventually, yes, like... It's a little bit of a
0: parallel these days where like, we were all into... I I don't consider myself left or right, but I would say in general I was always more into like the left side and power to the people, and all of a sudden, just seems things have been like just Change in a weird way where I was like, whoa, like I'm like starting to resonate with a lot of things on the right, too, where I just want sovereignty and to be left alone and the right to just do my thing without being peer pressure or guilt trip it into some ideology. Um, I, I, I love the good intentions of a politically correct world and that we all want to make everybody feel included and, and, and or, or not insulted. Sometimes I feel like it's what you're saying earlier in the interview, you know, like, why are we all getting so insulted about something and then throwing the insult back? It's like a back and forth two sides attack as opposed to being like, hey, just be nice and don't fuck with somebody. And if you feel insulted, see like, oh, did they have bad intentions to insult you? And do you got insult back as a retaliation, or maybe they didn't know the new word that they should have had because maybe they weren't informed? Like, how can we understand each other with love and compassion, and and just keep on a conversation that's like, hey, like this particular word hurts me, and let's try our best not to hurt each other.
1: You know, like yeah. always
0: being friendly.
1: Yeah, we well. It's supposed to be two sides fighting we, nonstop. We have to get to know our mind first. We have to get, we have to know our mind. We have to notice when our mind opposes or agrees or braces against an idea that it hears if you're speaking with somebody who's really wound up and really passionate about their idea and if you know if you don't share that idea just their energy is if you're not aware if you haven't done the work of becoming aware of your own mind and your heart and your emotions and stuff which we all we know this this work exists but if you've never done any at all then you're probably always going to just get triggered into your spot of defense to hold your ground when you feel their energy being defensive, you know, and you, you defend against it. So it's like, you know, we, we don't want to make up our mind. We want to seek disconfirmation. We want to, you know, I, we, for me, I know that every, I, I do, I know that every human is, is a beautiful divine spark of, you know, divine energy. I, I don't, see any difference. You know, I, I mm-hmm. the more someone is in struggle, you know, the, the more my heart pours out to them. This culture has been engineered. I mean, the, the sign, the signifying features of our culture are that we, we were taught from the very beginning to obey authority, you know, rather than to like, uh, find out for ourselves. And mm-hmm. so that's, that is not coherent with our genetic ancestral, biological, neurological makeup, you know? It's in opposition to it. Like our natural, it took us millions of years to get here and our natural uh, ability to determine truth and what's right in the world was developed in the same way that the frogs and the caterpillars and the the tree and the, the sea moss figured out how to deal with their environment, you know? That's the truth. We each possess that ability to know the truth. Mm -hmm. we are there's nothing to know but truth you know there's nothing that is not god according to the definitions i've ever read of god Mm -hmm. you know everything everything so the universe is always perfect in its architecture and in its geometry at all times you know like um the wind blows a a tree and the tree falls down and kills a baby rabbit you know and and then some maggots go in on the baby rabbit And then those turn to flies that feed some frog. Some little kid catches in the pond, and he's got a little frog, takes it up. You know, the wind's blowing that day. Mm -hmm. Now, who are we gonna curse? The tree? We're gonna curse the wind? You know, like, curse the maggot?
0: Mm-hmm. everything all is perfect. everything yeah and when I go into the space of ayahuasca sometimes I realize that there's nothing bad because the bad is also good as God trying to observe itself from all these different perspectives and as what we consider to be bad or painful or discomfort that as is as much important in the equation as the joy and the love and, the, and it's all just trying to find the three dimensionality of the physical realm that he, he it Everything had to put himself in in order to experience it.
1: Absolutely, I think it's all blessings. At the end of the day, I totally agree. That's a beautiful way to look at it. Um, I heard that uh, someone say once that God is has uh, personality identity disorder, and Mm -hmm. we are God's altars. Mm -hmm. You know, we're the we're the separate personalities. You know, like the 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 mind. you know, is the fundamental. You know that's like the 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 fundamental ground of what we can figure out and talk about at least
0: the operating it has system has to come
1: through here for us to even talk about it mm-hmm. you know but we think of us like the the the, the river of consciousness and uh, the whirlpools in the river like we're the different minds but we're there's we're not really anything mm-hmm. you know we're you can delineate the boundaries around us that make us what we are just like you can look at a whirlpool and know there's forces that make that whirlpool exist but you know a minute later, it's just back to water, you know, mm-hmm. and we know we're just the water, like we're, yeah. Well, hopefully in this uh, knowing that everything is
0: everything and everything is good and everything is love, may we go through times of darkness and self-realization through the dark night of the soul. We can find some peace in knowing that we're always in the hand of God, whatever that may be, and we'll be okay. And at one point, we'll go back to source, which is eternal, infinite bliss and uh, this video game was enjoyed for what it was. And Absolutely. We'll, and we'll still try our best to yeah, do yeah. what feels good from our heart and what's connected to, to that part. Well, um, all my cameras are dying on me, uh, so <laughs> I think we're gonna...
1: I hope we can pull an hour out of that somewhere. <laughs> oh,
0: we'll use it all. Uh, it's a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much, Banjo. Yes,
1: brother. Ah.
0: And uh, thank you guys for... Um, wait, is this camera still working, John? Okay. And thank you guys for watching. Uh, please make sure to like, subscribe, comment if you, any of this conversation resonated with you. And I'll see you next week. Blessings. Woo! LSD taught me how to see stuff. Uh, aside from psychic revelations and visiting with God and coming to grips with the idea of dying and all that other good stuff LSD can help you out with, it taught me visually how to look at stuff. How to analyze colors, how to see patterns, you know, and waves or tree branches or leaves or veins or erosion, all that kind of stuff. Um, it taught you how to look at it, really understand it, see see nature. And we used to take it all the time, every weekend and hitchhike down to San Francisco and go see bands, you know, at the Grateful Dead and the Starship, or not Starship, that was the airplane then. Right. And all the San Francisco bands, we save our lunch money, it was only $3.50 to get in. Mm. So if you saved up, if you could scrape up five bucks a week, you could get a hit of acid and your thumb, get down to San Francisco and go to a show. So make sure to subscribe, like and everything else. Big thanks and see you next week. Peace.